The way we take care of ourselves is ever evolving. And what we know for sure is that our mind and spirit are linked to our physical body and that our wellness seems to extend into our communities and the planet we all share. It is very, very clear that wellness is interconnected. We love spending time with you to explore and practice the breakthroughs, the insights, and the passions of incredible people helping us all see the world in a whole new light. This is HealthGig. I'm so excited to welcome Erin Meyer to today's HealthGig. Erin is the founder of the Mindful Healing Works Wellness Center in Dundalk, Maryland. Erin is an incredible individual and gets quite vulnerable and open on today's health gig about how she started and what made her decide to start an organization like Mindful Healing Works Wellness Center. She does believe that there's a demand for accessible spaces where people can feel at home and without shame. So that is why she built this incredible center and it is beautiful and she is serving so many people and serving them well. She herself has begun to change the landscape of mental health care. We are so thrilled to have you on Health Gig today, Erin. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. This is a real thrill for me because it's so fun to have people that I meet and just so amazed by, and then to be able to share them with our entire world out here in Health Gig world. So again, thanks for being here. You are the founder of the Mindful Healing Works. Can you tell us what it is and what your focus is and what your life's work is? Mindful Healing Works is a mental health agency and we do therapy, we do psychiatry, and we do PRP, which is a psychiatric rehabilitation program. So those are the three programs that we are doing now. Mindful Healing Works was founded. I was a therapist that was going into people's homes. This is before covid and kind of just going around Baltimore and doing in-home therapy, which I loved because you could really see the behind the scenes of what was really going on for people because you were inside their house and you could see the dynamics of how they lived and all of those like social factors that really make a difference in mental health. You know, I knew that I wanted to start my own practice and I felt like there was nothing that I really wanted out there that was available for clients. So I created it. Yeah. And what you've created is quite remarkable. And even just from the name, Mindful Healing Works. I love that. So Mindful Healing Works, Mindful Healing Works. How did you come up with that name? And how do you see Mindful Healing Works as different than what's been offered in the past? Me and my best friend, Crystal, who actually, she works for us now, just doing some part-time stuff for us now in billing. So we were at her apartment and we still laugh about it because she was in Montgomery County and it was like her first kind of apartment up there. And she didn't even really have that much furniture. So we were sitting on the floor and I didn't really even know how to make a Gmail account. And you know how you have to, you know, you have to make sure it's available. So we were on the floor and we were trying to figure out a name and I knew I wanted it to say something mindful or, you know, something So we were going through and she is the one that named the business. She said, Mindful Healing Works. And I'm like, that's it. And then it was just like this moment of, oh my gosh, I hope it's available on Gmail. And (laughs) And it was. And and it was. So that is how it came to be, Mindful Healing Works. 
And just like you said it, Trisha, it was like mindful healing and it works. So yeah, it mindful healing works. That's, that's great how, name. yeah, that's how it came about. And what, again, how do you see that you're changing because you are changing the face of mental health and mental wellness? How do you see that Mindful Healing Works is doing that? From being around and working in the field and, you know, and going into many clinics, I felt like it was very sterile. You know, of course, my clients told me that they had anxiety going into these places and they felt like they were unwelcome and they felt like they were walking in and kind of just getting medications thrown at them and not real therapy. So what I wanted to do is give people an experience where it doesn't matter who you are, you know, what your socioeconomic status is, that you deserve top-notch mental health care being the therapists, the practitioners, the providers, everyone that works, you know, with you, as well as the space that you're walking into. To me, it seems very kind of common sense that a space would matter with how you feel. You know, we have a sensory experience when you walk in. We have a crystal, we have crystal waters, you know, I have the Himalayan salt lamps. I have these like foot domes or Himalayan foot domes. We have a beautiful waiting area that people have really just gone in and gotten a blanket and fallen asleep, which is my favorite thing because it just shows that they're so comfortable. You know, the lights are dim. We have, of course, super friendly receptionists that have been with us for a long time and they're amazing. Offer you a drink, offer you tea, escort you over to the waiting room. It's really like a spa experience almost. It does. It sounds like it's a spa experience. And again, allowing your body to relax, to feel like you're in a safe place, a nurturing place. It sort of is the beginning of the healing journey, I guess, when you come into your office for my appointment. Yeah. And that's what our clients have said, you know, because of course I read, I read our reviews and you know, all the time. And we have a, you know, an internal kind of review system that sends out after appointments and sends to clients to get feedback. And that is so much of what it says. I felt relaxed as soon as I walked in the door. And that is what I want to provide. And a majority of our clients are coming from a trauma, you know, have have extensive trauma in their history. So very hypervigilant and to be able to calm down the system like that, even by walking in the door, it's just something that to me is very common sense. But in the field, people are like, I've never seen an office like this and I've never had an experience like this. So I feel like it's kind of simple things. Yeah, but that just makes sense, you know, and your patients are healing, like you said, at a, at a place where you want them to now, right? I mean, people are getting better and you're seeing that this kind of way of doing things actually works. Each person is an individual for us. That is another thing that I think it's really lost in the mental health space is just this almost assembly line of people that are walking in because it is an overwhelming amount of people that need care. But even though there is an overwhelming amount of people that need care, it does not mean that the care should be less just because we need a lot of it. 
Right, exactly. And actually, it's the other side of it is like you're saying, let's step up and do the best we can to help as many people as we can. But Erin, your story and how you got to be where you are, do you want to share a little bit about that? I think everybody loves to know where people come from and what makes them the creator of something so incredible, what you've created and how you're actually changing the way or the face of the way people are treated or the way they come for therapy. I'll just kind of take it, I'll take it all the way back to to kind of give you a brief version. So I can remember just as a child, I was a very anxious, very anxious child. I can remember kindergarten and I can remember elementary school very, I mean, my stomach hurt every single day of everything, like every single day my stomach hurt. You know, looking back now, I know that I'm like, wow, I feel so bad for that little girl that you know, was just so anxious as an adult, but I didn't really know any better. So very anxious child, very anxious as I grew up middle school, um, high school was definitely not a good experience for me at all. I was a chunky kid. And I look back now and I I was like, kind of cute. Like I really wasn't even that that I probably would have grown out of this, right? But I had this in my head that I was this like beast, you know, and I was really bullied a lot and made fun of. And that's traumatizing for a kid. And I think that we know more about that now. But, you know, I was born in, you know, 1980. And like, it was just kind of like, you just kind of deal with it, you know, kids will be kids. And I think that some of us are a little bit more sensitive than others. And, you know, I definitely had the very strong exterior of I don't care and nothing hurts me. And I was always very funny, you know, which is typical of people that are really, you know, hurting. So I was a chunky kid. So I was made fun of a lot. I had friends and stuff, but I always felt out of place because I always felt like, you know, I had this identity of being this like the fat kid, right? You know, I go through middle school. This is the same kind of, you know, scenario. And then I go into high school and around age 16, I start to exercise. And then I started to, looking back now, I my diet was horrible. I think I ate like <laughs> noodles and like buffalo wing. I don't even know, like right. I had no idea like what I was eating, but I was losing weight and that's all that mattered to me. I was exercising and, you know, feeling good. And then into my senior year, I was looking really good and I was getting a lot of like accolades for that. It was like, wow, you know, you look so good. And this like really kind of like positive reinforcement with that. So that felt good for me. And then when I graduated, I remember the day or the days where I'm like, I didn't exercise and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to go back to being this fat girl and I don't want to do that. And I was panicked but it happened. I say all this because I went back to the food as my drug per se. I had met a person that I ended up dating for like 10 years, really. It was like a perfect storm of of like, I felt like it was good that we were together because he really was there for me, but we were there for each other for the most kind of negative parts of ourselves. We really hung on to that for a very long time. So I met him when I was 17. So he met me when I was like looking my best. And then he saw me also very transformative. Well, I say in a negative way for me, it was very negative because I was just 
wearing my hurt and anxiety on my body in the form of weight. So this is the way that it was presenting for me. Other people, they might gamble, they might do drugs, they might, you know, there's many other ways to kind of self-sabotage and self-harm, cutting, burning. I didn't do any of those things. But what I did was I was killing myself with food and I was overeating. I didn't know how to stop. I really got away from my family during this time. My parents, my sister, my extended family really just got away from them and just completely isolated myself just with my partner at the time. And I just isolated myself. So then um, fast forward 27 years old, he comes to me and says, you know, I really want to go out and kind of sow my wild oats. And I just feel like we've been together for such a long time. And I understood like, you know, at, at a gut level, like I understood because that was probably the best thing that could have happened for both of us. But I was scared. I had a lot of fear because, you know, he had taken care of me financially, really. And I didn't have any money. I didn't have a job. I was just so in fear. I was like so fat, <laughs> you know, so it was like my lowest of lows you know, at the time. What I did was I went, I moved back in with my parents and I got a job at Safeway as a cashier. I had to work. So I I worked there as I'm going through and, you know, him and I were broken up. Like we were going to, we were done. Like it was not like something that break up, get back together. It was, we were done. I decided at that time, because my solution at that time was, well, if I lose weight, everything is going to be great. Because I really did genuinely think that people that were thin had no problems in their life. Like I I, I can really, rem- I mean, I really at a gut core level believed that at one point in my life, you know, don't anymore. But I did at one point, I decided that I was going to get weight loss surgery. So I went through my physician and it was like, a, I think it was like a six month process. I wasn't taking any of it seriously. I was simply doing this because I'm like, if you cut my stomach out, this is the issue. So, you know, go ahead. I need a surgical intervention. And it was just that. I'm not saying that this is what the surgery is, but I'm saying the way that I was thinking of it as I wanted a quick way out. I wanted to lose weight and then everything would be okay. I did go through with the surgery. It was successful. I lost a bunch of weight. After that, I had skin removed. I had a tummy tuck. I had a breast lift. I had my arms done my legs done. So it's like a very, 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 very painful, painful surgeries. And as I look back now, very far removed from that, it makes me sad that I went there and then had to like do all that from something that was seriously a physical manifestation of anxiety. Anyway, moving forward, I I do all this stuff. I start going out, start going out to the bars and getting all this attention from guys. I was still nervous and anxious and, you know, like all that. I was still me on the inside, you know, and I was never a drinker before. Definitely have alcoholism in my family and there's definitely that biological component. But I I guess I thought, well, this isn't going to happen to me. I mean, you know, I'm not, I don't even, I don't even really like drinking, you know, but what I did like from drinking is the effect that alcohol gave me. Later, I learned 
that this is alcoholism. You drink for effect. You don't drink for just to have a glass of wine with dinner, you know, how regular people drink. They want to have the taste. That was never my case. So I was, you know, I was anxious and nervous and I would go out and I would get a drink and I would get a shot. Then I could breathe. Then I could like interact with people. I had no idea the counter transference or like of, of addiction. So it was like, I can't eat anymore. So then it definitely presented itself as alcoholism, really and truly. And I had no idea what it was. I was just drinking and I was having a great time because I had never done this before. So in my 20s, I didn't do any of that. At this point, I'm 29 and I'm drinking. I'm having a great time. I was living with my sister at the time. And my sister told my parents, Erin has a problem. She's coming home. She's drunk. She's drinking too much. You know, I think that my parents just were, I don't know, maybe thought my sister was overreacting or something, but she really wasn't. And I feel bad about this too. And me and my sister have talked about it, that my sister started going to Al-Anon, which is a 12-step meeting for like family members of people that are affected by alcoholics in their life. I really affected my sister. You know, of course, I had no idea at the time that that was going on, but she was very affected by that. So, you know, her and I have, have talked about that and we still, you know, we still will bring it up. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's something. And at this point, as you said, you're only 29 and you've been through this pretty remarkable kind of lives in a way at this point. So what happens now? The day before New Year's Eve, I was out and I was drinking and I remember thinking to myself, I'm so glad I didn't drink that much tonight because I kind of knew in my gut that I was going to get a DUI at some point. It's like one of those things, you know, like I, I just was kind of like, yeah, this is going to be part of my story. You know, I'm very intuitive and it's like I kind of knew it. So we leave this party and I'm driving and, you know, I'm like, I haven't drank that much tonight. Meanwhile, I had drank an insane amount of alcohol now that I look back. So, you know, I get pulled over, gives me the field sobriety test. I get arrested. I go to the holding cell or whatever. And meanwhile, I'm still a little bit drunk at this point. So I kind of am like, okay. I come to at like six in the morning, kind of like, and realize like, oh my gosh, I'm in jail. Like, oh my whoa. Word. I went and I saw the commissioner and they, you know, they let me out and, you know, all that. And I had, you know, a friend come pick me up. That was a moment where I'm like, okay, I'm never going to drink and drive again. But I did not think I'm never going to drink again, which is very indicative of this is a problem because you were just in jail and you're already thinking about, I can't wait till tonight because I'm going to go out again. I'm just not going to drive because that's where I was mentally. So I'm supporting myself right now by student loans. Okay. So at this point, you've gone back to school, back to college because you hadn't gone to college yet. So you started college when you were 29. Yeah. But what I'm doing is I'm living off of student loans and my parents had no idea that I was drinking the way that I was drinking. And they were helping me because I was in school. And you're getting I, yourself back on track and yeah, everything, right? Myself back on track. So this is kind of like how I'm supporting myself. And I didn't have any money. I remember like I have $20 to my name or when I tell you I had no money, I had no money. 
you know, I had a roof over my head. People were supportive of me, but it wasn't like my parents just gave me money. It That definitely was not the case at all. I get the DUI. I go through court. So fast forward a year, I finally am at a point where I didn't hear a voice, but I heard I had an intuitive sense and I really did hear it was either I was going to get sober and stop drinking alcohol or I was going to die and it was going to be from alcohol related kind of thing. I was going to drink too much one night or it was going to be and it was going to be sad. And I kind of saw this future. I was living in, in an apartment and I had my room like bubblegum pink painted. And I just remember like I, I remember having this moment. It was like a God moment of like, this is the way it's going to go. So here's your choice. It was from that moment that I feel like the universe kind of aligned and people came into my life that told me about AA. So I met this guy, Nick. He took me to my first AA meeting. I had no idea what anything was and why I was even there. And it was around the holiday time because I remember saying to him, I'm going to go to the beach for New Year's and I'm definitely going to drink. But when I come back, I'm going to take AA serious. Like I, I really, I really am. I can remember being and saying that to him. And now I look back and I laugh at that because as an alcoholic myself, you know, people have said that to me and I'm like, I'm thinking, you know, okay, but I guess we get there when we get there. I told him that and I did. I went to the beach. I drank like crazy. I was sick. My parents have a house in Delaware, so I stayed with them. So that was, I think, one of the first times that they had seen me like that drinking to that excess and like how sick I was and everything. I came home and went to a couple more meetings with Nick and we're into January. So my sobriety date is January 13th, 2013. My last night of drinking, it wasn't. And it's funny enough, my friend Crystal that named the business was out with me that night. It was one of these things of, you know, she still says, I can still see you with that ice pick slurping, trying to get that last bit of drink out of it at two o'clock in the morning and I'm bargaining with the bartender. And of course, Crystal, you know, she's not a big drinker, never has been. So she's, of course, sober and driving us back. We still talk about that. But yeah, that was my last night. So nothing really to write home about. It wasn't like one last shebang. And I woke up that next day and it was like, I can't do this anymore. Called Nick. I went to a meeting with him that Sunday night and never had a drink again. And the reason that I say all this to explain how mindful healing works is because AA was my gateway to the opening of my like spiritual self, right? Like I did a lot of work on myself. I had no idea about 12 step. I had no idea about how great that was for me. You know, some people have different experiences with it, but I had a really good experience most people are familiar with AA, but can you talk to us just a bit about it and what the 12 steps are and why it really is such a spiritual experience for so many people that are part of AA? I had no idea what it was. And I went into the meetings and I'm seeing the 12 steps on one side and then the 12 traditions on the other side of the wall. And I'm reading and the only step that really has anything to do with any alcohol or addiction is the first step. And it's just kind of admitting like, hey, I'm powerless over this. Like I kind of need some help here. <laughs> and they let you know that, you know, you can pick kind of whatever higher power that you believe in. And if you don't even believe in a higher power, that's okay too. And like I said, that was my experience. And I know that other people have had different experiences because people are people and there's different 
meetings that have different people in them. And, you know, I definitely know people that have had negative experiences with it. But the 12 steps for me forced me to look into myself and look into why I wanted or needed to drink. And I also very much related that back to food as well, because food was my first drug of choice. I paralleled those two a lot. You know, although I was definitely and am still very much an alcoholic, right? Because it does, I'm not actively drinking alcohol, but I still think alcoholically, you know, like doing impulsive things, you know, and, you know, I have to stop myself and realize, like, okay, you know, this is my natural go to, which kind of helps me sometimes in creating things in business because there's not a lot of fear there. But then there's also that other side where I kind of have to like be pulled back sometimes. So you were just giving me a description of what AA was really like. And then what I think of is how much has this influenced the mindful healing works and how did that happen? And then I guess at this point, you're 30 now going to AA. And then when did you decide to go into becoming a therapist? Well, no, I'm, I'm 31. I'm in the program. Yeah, I'm 31. And I finished my undergrad and also being able to get to that point of like gaining that confidence through step work and through other people in the program and just kind of building that network. You know, I went back to school. I went back and I got my bachelor's from Towson University and I stayed at Towson and I got a uh, a master's in professional studies. Looking back at it, it was just kind of like a hodgepodge of like different classes that I took. I think I was kind of in this waiting period of like, can I go do clinical psychology? Like, Anyway, I got that. I have this master's in professional studies, which is kind of like, okay, that's cool. It's on my wall, but I don't really know how much it did for me. I remember applying at Johns Hopkins and I had always wanted to go to Johns Hopkins. Even as the kid, I remember being like, I want to go there, you know, like this prestigious kind of school, you know, but I never thought that I ever could. So I, you know, I applied and they had their interview process and there was other people in a cohort. They made us do like triads or dyads of kind of therapy sessions. And anyway, I got in, I got in the program and I got the letter. I get in. It was great. And I, I really enjoyed that. So I went through, graduated with my master's from Johns Hopkins. I also got an advanced certificate. I did an internship my first kind of job in the field, I was running an IOP, which is an intensive outpatient program for people that had substance abuse issues. But the program was strictly for men that were domestic violence offenders that had addictions. So for most people that might scare them. For me, I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like, this is like, I love this. So I learned a lot there just by dealing with the people and the people that I helped really we had a lot of people that were very low socioeconomic, had a lot of like generational patterns that were just not healthy. You know, many like drug dealers, gang members, people like that. And I mean, I definitely did not come from a background of that. I definitely did not grow up around that. But for some reason, I was able to really, really connect with these people that were in pain in their own way because I most of my life felt so much pain inside, but always had to put on, you know, kind of put on a show. And I was everybody's kind of go-to and I was always everybody's therapist. And I always was like a really good friend and like everybody's kind of like go-to person when they needed something. 
But I never had that. I never had my person to go to. So I just was. And I just was really, really depleted being that person, just like energetically. So I meet these people at my first internship and I'm loving there is a solution. Like there is a solution because now, you know, I'm starting to feel better, right? Like I'm graduating, I'm doing things for myself. In the state of Maryland, you have to have a certain amount of hours that you have to do underneath a supervisor before you can go out on your own. So at this point, I was it's called a, a licensed graduate professional counselor, and I obtained that license. This is when I started going around and doing in-home therapy and a lot with like the Medicaid population because a lot of these people didn't have transportation, so they couldn't come to an office. So I'm like, well, I'll come to you. And the place that I worked for, you know, that was one of the things that they offered. And I'm like, well, this is what I want to do. I just kind of want to go around and do this. And I just fell in love with it. And I was able to see how disparaging it was like in the city and how these people lived. And there was no real way to get out. I saw a way to get out because I had gotten out of my own private hell, really. I'm looking at their situation and I'm like, wow, okay, there's a solution here. You know, like, let's like hop into motion. I had to do this for two years because that's the law. I could not go out on my own and do anything for two years because I had to get all my hours and all that stuff. So I remember sitting with this supervisor at that job and her saying, you know, we really want you to stay. And, you know, when you get your full licensure and everything. And I said, well, I'm going to start my own clinic. They kind of looked at me like, yeah, okay. (laughs) You know, I was just so serious. Like, I, you know, I'm like, no, I mean, I'm, I'm really going to start my own clinic. Like, that's just what I'm doing. And now that I know what I know, I can understand why that supervisor looked at me like, um, do you know what you're doing? And I didn't. I think if I would have known what I was doing, I don't know if I would have done it, to be honest with you. I didn't know. So I didn't know everything that it took and all the heartache going through. Right, right. It's like building a business and then a real niche business too, right? It was a lot. So I knew the mental health community did not have anything that created a safe space. Now, this is in my opinion, created a safe space where people could come in, they could feel comfortable They could be so comfortable that they could fall asleep in our waiting room, which is like the biggest compliment that I feel like you could ever, especially people that are just so hypervigilant, they come, they have trauma, that they are so safe and comfortable here that they can actually fall asleep. I wanted to create this sensory experience. I wanted to create a beautiful space. I wanted to build people up because I understood and I knew that the only way that people are going to come up is if you treat them as if they're already there, as if they're already the best version of themselves. Just in general, I feel like sometimes people treat people like, oh, well, just kind of like where they are. And while I do believe that you have to meet people where they are, I think that it is our job and our duty to bring people up. And especially for me, where I was coming from, I had been down so, so, so much. And I really didn't ever tell anybody how I felt because I didn't know how I felt. I didn't know there was help for me. I didn't know that even existed. I wanted to create a place that I needed that didn't exist. That was kind of the driving force. This doesn't exist. I would have loved to have been able to come to a place 
like mindful healing works and feel accepted the second that I walked in the door, feel not judged, be in a beautiful experience because, you know, your environment has so much to do with the way that you feel. And just at a baseline, have somewhere to go that I could talk and be safe and just kind of like explore my feelings or even explore anything. So that is definitely where and how it was born. Yeah. What a story, Erin. Wow. How long ago did you open Mindful Healing Works? So we opened in 2019. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I had $2,000 to my name in my bank account. And I went and I rented an office in Dundalk. So we're still in Dundalk, but I'm now in the MedStar building. So we've moved since then. But it was like a little four office, little space. I just had no business doing that. <laughs> I look back now and I'm like, what were you thinking? But I wasn't thinking. And that's where it's like the universe really and truly had my back because this was supposed to come into fruition. But, right, right. you know, from a logical mind, I'm like, you know, like I had nothing. And my dad, and I don't know why this even happened because this is not something my dad would have ever done. I said, dad, I need to get some furniture. I need to get some desks. I need to get some computers. And, you know, please help me and I will pay you back. I promise. Even if everything goes down to nothing, I can still make money as a therapist and I'll pay you back. So he had a $30,000 credit card with a credit limit and he let me use that card. And I, you know, knowing my dad and, you know, so close with my dad, but my dad is not the type (laughs) that would do that. So I did. I, I paid him back the very next month. It was definitely like, it was not all me. Yeah. And now you are really being recognized as a leader in the field. You've actually a pioneer changing the way that people can get help and services, which is incredible. And if you hadn't had the, I don't know, like you said, the fearlessness to do it, so many people wouldn't be benefiting. Erin, it has been a pleasure hearing your story and how you have come from pretty tough places to now being this creator of an incredible place to serve others. The Mindful Healing Works, it's just incredible. And thank you for sharing your story and letting us know sometimes the things that aren't so easy, how you've been able to turn them into strengths. So thank you for that. And thank you for giving me the platform to do that, Trisha. This is actually the very first time I have ever told that full story like that in a public way. I've never done this before and I was nervous and now I am so glad that I did it. So thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. Precision medicine is a genetics-based approach to personalized care informed by biometrics, genomics, and lifestyle factors. Dr. Dawson, founder, CEO of Wild Health, can bring you incredible recommendations for diet, exercise, sleep, mental health, disease risk reduction, and more based on your personal health story. 
All of you are invited to get to know Matt Dawson better beside the ocean and over some incredible meals at Gasparilla in November. Call for the Foundations of Wellness Experience reservations at 877-764-1420 or the-gasparilla-in.com.